This morning we are going to be continuing our journey through the book of Galatians. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and get it out and turn to Galatians chapter 2. We are going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. Now, if you don't have your Bible with you, we will have it on the screen. But if you do have your Bible, I'd always encourage you to read along in your own Bible. Now, this is the third um, sermon in this particular series. And since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Galatians, I want to take just a couple of minutes to bring us from where we've been to where we are right now. So I want to remind you that Paul is writing this letter, the book of Galatians, to the churches in Galatia. And that's actually a region. Paul is not writing this letter to any one specific church. He is writing this letter to all churches in that region. And the reason he is writing this letter is because he knows that false teaching is occurring. And he also knows that these churches have bought into it. It was being taught that in order for Gentiles to truly be saved, that not only must they accept Christ, but they must also observe, observe and keep the Mosaic Law, And we're going to be looking at that in detail in chapter 2 today. Now the title of the first sermon was No Other Gospel. And we talked that day about the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only gospel. Any other gospel is a false gospel gospel. And we talked about how important it is that we stand firm upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I also reminded you that day that when we do that in our society today, we will not be popular. We will not be popular. People are likely to say bad things about us. People are likely to treat us badly. But just as I reminded you that day, I'm going to remind you again today the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth it. It is worth anything that we will endure here during our journey on earth. We must, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must stand firm upon his gospel. The title of the second sermon in this particular series was The Power of a Testimony. And in that particular sermon, we took a look at Paul's testimony. And we saw that Paul went from being a persecutor, a persecutor of the Christians, to being a proclaimer of the gospel. And it was all because Jesus had radically transformed his life. I wonder this morning, have you experienced such a transformation? Because you, as a believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're truly following him, just like Paul had a testimony so do you. You also have a testimony. Now, if you were with us on Wednesday night, Brother Blake and I started the training to equip us on going out to share the gospel door to door, the gospel to every home. And we talked on Wednesday night about how to share your testimony, how to share your story and how to do it in two minutes or less. If you are not able to be with us on Wednesday night, I'd encourage you to come tonight because we're going to be continuing that. We'll also be continuing it this 
Wednesday, but you have a testimony just exactly like Paul. Now, your, your testimony is going to look different than Paul's, but it's equally as powerful if your life has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we prepare to take a look into the scripture this morning, as we prepare to step off into the scripture this morning, I want to remind you, as Brother Blake and I often do, that you have the responsibility to take what you hear preached from this pulpit and any other pulpit and compare it directly to the Word of God. We encourage you to do that. It is important. I would never intentionally mislead you, but guess what? I'm human. I might end up saying something that I didn't even intend to say, nor did I know that I said it. That's that's one of the reasons it's so important It is so important that when you hear preaching from anyone that you compare it directly to the Word of God. Now, as you'll see on the screen this morning, the title of this morning's message is A Hill to Die On. A Hill to Die On. And I wonder, have you ever heard the phrase that not every hill is a hill to die on? Probably if you're my age or older, you have definitely heard that phrase, and there's a lot of truth in it. You know what? Not not every argument that we have with somebody, not everything that we see posted in social media is a hill to die on for us. What if we lose our witness in the midst of that? Now, I'll take that a step farther and, and say also, not every theological disagreement is a hill to die on. Now, if if you're confused about what I'm saying right now, see me after the service. I'll be glad to give you many examples. But I want to be very, very clear when I say that there are many things from a standpoint of theology that are indeed a hill to die on. We're going to be looking at one of those this morning. And I'll tell you right now, Jesus is the one and the only way to heaven. That is a hill to die on. If we are having a discussion, a disagreement with somebody, and they believe that Jesus is a way, that's a hill for me to die on. I will never be able to agree with that person. Never. But I should continually point them to the Scriptures and the truth that is contained therein. Now, we're going to be seeing this morning that Paul is experiencing one of these hills to die on. And it's a hill that he is willing to die on because the gospel of Jesus Christ is being compromised. These false teachers are saying that salvation is based on Jesus plus something. And we're going to be seeing here just in a minute, they are insisting that salvation for the Gentiles is based on Jesus plus keeping or observing the Mosaic law. Now, as we look at this morning's scripture, we're going to be looking at all 21 verses in this particular chapter. And we're going to be doing that primarily by looking at it in two large sections. And the first large section we're going to look at this morning are verses 1 through 10. And here's what we're going to see as we examine these 10 verses. We are going to see that Paul's message And his authority is supported by the Jerusalem church. That is crucial. And we're going to see here in just a moment 
why that is so crucial. Now, as we look at verse 1, the very first thing that we really should ask ourselves is what significance is this reference of 14 years? 14 years from what? What is Paul talking about here? Is it 14 years from when he originally taught in the Galatian church or churches? Possibly. It might be. Some people say it's 14 years from his radical conversion. It might be. It's 14 years from something, as the Scripture says. And then there are Bible scholars today that have taken a look at this, and they say that time wasn't calculated exactly then like it is now. And so this period that says 14 years might equate to something more like 12 of our years today. But here's what I want you to take away from this reference to 14 years. No matter if it's 14 years from when Paul was originally preaching and teaching in the in these Galatian churches, or if it was 14 years from his radical conversion, or if it represented something closer to 12 years of our years today. Here's what I want you to take away from that reference to 14 years is during that time period Paul was faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was not willing under any circumstance to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was bold and he was faithful. Just like Paul, we also must be bold and faithful regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Now again, it's important that we remember that these people were sitting under teaching of false teachers that were saying that salvation was based on Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law. So we see here in verse 1 that Paul goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas, but then he takes Titus along with him. Now as you hear that this morning, you might be wondering, why is this significant? Why is it important that Titus go on this team. Well, here is why it was important. Titus was a known Gentile. He did not keep or observe the Mosaic law. So Paul is taking Titus along as a test case. Would these Jewish leaders, once they arrived, would these Jewish leaders accept Titus as a fellow Christian, as a fellow believer? Or would they demand that he observe their laws and that he would have to undergo circumcision? Now remember that salvation is not based on Jesus plus anything. It is certainly not based on Jesus plus circumcision, nor is it based on Jesus plus anything. Just like the song that we sang earlier, it's Jesus. Jesus, that is what salvation is based on. Now we see in verse 2 that Paul is making this trip because of a revelation. He is going to be sure. The reason that Paul is going is so he can be sure of what the apostles' position on salvation is, specifically in relationship to the Jewish law. Now keep in mind that Jerusalem was not forcing Paul to come so that they could give him their approval. Instead, God sent Paul upon this mission. And you know, do you know why? To maintain unity in those churches. Now, if the leaders in Jerusalem 
held to the legalistic view as the false teachers were teaching and required Titus to be circumcised, then Paul would have felt that he was running his race in vain. He would have felt that he was running his race in vain. If they were preaching a legalistic message, they would not likely receive Paul's message that he was preaching, that he was teaching, which, of course, was a message of grace. Now, sometimes we are just confused on grace and what God's grace is. But I want you to know that if you expect to receive God's grace, repentance has got to be in your vocabulary. True repentance has to be in your vocabulary. God is not going to just shower his blessings on me or anyone else if we are willingly living a life of sin. Just like that old song, there shall be showers of blessing. That's true, but it's true for the people that are saved. Don't expect Jesus to bless sin. Don't try to claim God's grace if you are living a sinful lifestyle. We'll be talking about that more later in the sermon. But we see at the end of verse 2 that Paul talked to those people who seemed influential. What he's saying here is he's talking to the leaders of that church and he is making sure that he was not running his race in vain. Now in verses 3 through 5, Paul's purpose in bringing Titus along is revealed. Now, it's important for us to see here that Paul stands firm against the false teachers. Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. When those false teachers continued to teach that Titus, along with all Gentiles, must be circumcised to be Christians, Paul boldly stood on the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, No. Verse 5, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul knew that salvation was by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 5, it's documentation that Paul has won this battle. They did not yield in submission even for a moment. And you might be asking, so why is that important? Why are you making such a big deal about that? The remainder of that verse answers the question. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for who? For you. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In verse 6, Paul is saying here that the leaders in Jerusalem did not add anything to his message. This is great news. It's great news. Those men realized that Paul's message was from God. They knew that from what they observed. They had accepted it as exactly what it was. It was true and it was complete. And the outcome of this was that they supported Paul's message and his authority. And that's huge because the the result of that is that they received him as a fellow apostle. Now let's look at verses 7 through 10. On the contrary, 
when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Now we see through reading in chapter 2 that various times Paul references the leadership in the church at Jerusalem. In verse 2, if you're still looking at your Bible, he referenced those people who seemed to be influential. In verse 6 that we read a moment ago, he refers again to those who seemed to be influential. And then in verse 9 here, he refers to those who seemed to be pillars. Those who seemed to be pillars. And the ones who seemed to be pillars were James, Cephas, and John. Now it's going to be important that you realize in a moment, if you don't already realize this now, when we are seeing Cephas here, I lost my ability to write on the screen, looks like. Here we go. We're talking about Peter. Cephas is another name for Peter. But James, Peter, and John recognized that God had called Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter was to do with the Jews. Now, once Paul had this approval from the leadership in Jerusalem, guess what it did? It helped to silence those who were teaching falsely, those who wanted to discredit Paul and his gospel message. Now, I want to be sure that you see here in these verses, that they gave the right hand to fellowship. That was significant, that they did that. By doing this, they gave their acceptance and their approval to Paul. And Paul knew that this was a sign that those men were seeing God's grace in his ministry. Now, the only request that they made of him was in verse 10. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, as we move to this next big section of Scripture, verses 11 through 21, we're going to start to see that Paul's message and his authority is acknowledged in and through the rebuke of Peter. And you might be wondering, so why is that a big deal? Well, here's why it's a big deal. Only someone who was an apostle would be able to rebuke and to correct Peter, and we're going to see that Paul does that in these verses. Now, in verse 11, we see that Paul is exercising his authority with the strongest church leader at this time, Cephas, who is Peter, the leader of the Jews. And look why Paul is correcting him. Because he stood condemned. Now, in verse 12, let me just paint the scene for you. Peter's eating with the Gentiles. Peter is eating with the Gentiles, which seems to be a good thing. But look what he does. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Why? 
because he feared the circumcision party. Now I wonder, have you ever known the right thing to do but didn't do it because maybe you were afraid of what somebody might think? I think that sort of represents Peter here. He was eating with the Gentiles, which at first glance was a good thing. But then all of a sudden, these people come. They're going to be referred to as the circumcision party, the Judaizers. And he doesn't want to be seen with the Gentiles. So he just withdrew himself. Maybe even in silence. Because he feared He feared them. And I want to make sure that we get what the result of that was. And it's clearly documented in verse 13. In a nutshell, by his actions, Peter was compromising grace. But look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. And get this, so that even Barnabas was led astray by what? Their hypocrisy. Now, do you remember who Barnabas was initially with? Paul was originally, Barnabas was originally with Paul. This is just a really clear indication about what a little false teaching will do. What a little silence will do when we allow a false gospel To come in and not say anything about it. Even someone who had been in the presence of Paul, the man with the radical testimony who went from persecuting Christians to being maybe the greatest proclaimer of the gospel ever, he had been in his presence. But he was led astray by their hypocrisy. It's a very, very serious thing. And then in verses 14 through 21, we're going to begin to see the correction by Paul. In verses 14 and 15, Paul knew he had to correct Peter. Because if he didn't, Peter's actions, they would indeed damage the church. So we see here that he does it publicly before them all. There in verse 14, that is how Paul chose to correct Peter in front of all of them. And he uses this question to reprimand him. Look there in verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So, Paul is having this conversation with him. Remember, these two men, Paul and Peter, they have both acknowledged that salvation is based only on Jesus. But then Peter is trying to hold a stricter standard to Gentiles than he expects to have to live himself. So Paul's asking him this question, how can you... Expect them to withhold rules and regulations that you don't have to withhold yourself. Now, as we move to verse 16, 
This is one of the most important verses in Galatians. We first see this word justified appear in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, when we talk about the word justified, it means to declare righteous. Justification is an act of God, and it's where God declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. These people, these false teachers who were rejecting the message of grace, which includes repentance, let's be clear on that, they were arguing that unless people were under the law, that they would freely sin. Their reasoning on this, here's what they would say, that they they thought that people could believe in Jesus but then live any way they wanted to and then they were saying that they, by doing that, they would make Christ a promoter of sin. Again, Paul answers boldly, no, no, that is not what he's preaching. That is not what he believes. And you know, it's not what we believe either. Let's be really clear on that. Grace leads to freedom from sin's slavery. Did you get that? Grace leads to freedom from sin's slavery. We don't have to keep all of these various rules and regulations of the Mosaic law. But let's be clear. Grace is not any kind of license to disobey Christ. Grace is not any type of license to disobey Christ. And I know this may be a touchy subject for some people, maybe even for some people who are hearing on the radio right now or listening by live stream. I have heard for years people that are maybe of a different denomination will come up to me and they say, you believe that y'all can just do anything you want to do. Once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. So you can live however you want to live and you're going to go to heaven. That is not what we believe. Let's be really clear about that. That is not what we believe. If you call yourself a Christian and you think you're free to live a sinful lifestyle and that Jesus is just going to automatically forgive you, you better check your spiritual pulse. A Christian, a believing Christian, will not be able to live a life of habitual sin without asking for repentance immediately. Yes, we believe in grace, but grace involves repentance. It is not a license to disobey Christ. Verse 18, Paul is saying here that if someone returns to the law after they say that they believe in Christ, look what they are, a transgressor, verse 18, which basically means a law breaker. You know, there's only one person who's able to keep the law perfectly. What's his name? 
Jesus. He is the only person who is able to keep the law perfectly. So if we try to put our relationship with Christ on some type of legalistic basis, we make ourselves a transgressor, a law breaker. Now as we look at verses 19 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's continuing to correct Peter here for having anything to do with a legalistic system that has no power at all to change lives. Now, in verses 19 and 20, in both of these verses, I want to make sure that you get this, that he is referencing both death and resurrection in both verses 19 and 20. In verse 19, he's saying he's no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. The law is powerless over him. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then in verse 20, Paul explains that he died to the law by being crucified with Christ. And as a result of this, Christ lives in him. I wonder this morning, does Christ live in you today? Paul is continuing to remind here that salvation is not based on on Jesus plus the law on Jesus plus good works, on anything other than Jesus. He lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in verse 21, 21, Paul is giving his conclusion here. I'm tongue-tied here. Remember, remember that these false teachers were basically canceling the grace of God by trying to add works to the work of Christ. But Paul's saying here that he does not nullify or set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And I'll tell you, as I initially began studying for this sermon when I read that final phrase, then, then Christ got, died for no purpose, it gave me chills. Because I know Christ did die for a purpose. I wonder this morning, do, do you realize that Christ died for a purpose? That purpose was me. That person was you. So that we would have an opportunity to accept a free gift of eternal life. Now, I know I've used this analogy before, but I I could bring in the most beautifully wrapped box that our eyes have ever seen. And And I could even give it to you. I could give it to you. And we could talk from this day until the last day of our lives of how beautiful the bow is, how beautiful the wrapping paper is, how beautiful the box is. But until we make the decision that we're actually going to take that box and open it and accept it, the fact that it's beautiful doesn't really do us any good. Salvation is a free gift from God. I wonder, have you accepted that free gift 
today. Again, on this theme of Christ dying for a purpose, I want to take us quickly to three other verses as we prepare to close today. The first one is going to be really familiar to you, John 3.16. I bet if I were to ask you to recite this verse this morning, if we turn the screen off, I bet every one of you could do it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ died for a purpose. Christ died for a purpose. And I want to tell you this morning, verse 16 of John 3, that is a verse that is designed to show us the tremendous love of God toward us. This particular verse is not intended to show us the love of Christ. There are many verses throughout the Bible that are designed specifically to show us the love of Christ. But this one is designed to show us the love of God. How much He loved us. For those of you who are parents this morning, I want to challenge you for just a moment to think like this. Can you imagine willingly allowing one of your children to die because you love the world so much. And you were doing that for the benefit of many people who have not even been born yet. Can you imagine doing that as a parent? Now imagine, what if that was your only child? Can we start to see just a little hint of how much that God loves us? It's huge. It's huge. Now I want to talk about one more verse, one more word in verse 16 before we move on to 17 and 18. And it's this word perish. Perish in this verse is referring to eternal death as opposed to eternal life. And I want to be really clear. Everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. It's in one of two places. For the true Christian, those people who have repented of their sins and asked Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, the blood of Jesus covers you. Those people will be the people who spend their eternity in heaven. Everyone else will spend their eternity in hell. Sometimes people incorrectly think that only the worst of the worst of the worst people go to hell. That is not correct. That is a lie directly from Satan. I'm convinced that there's going to be many, many good people that will spend their eternity in hell because they were relying on a salvation that was based on keeping laws, doing good works, instead of relying on faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Good works are important, but those works will be done in the overflow or out of the overflow of what Christ has done in your life. Now, let's look at verses 17 and 18. First of all, I want to tell you that I would encourage you, I would encourage you to memorize all three of these verses together. Because here's how they work together. Verse 16 tells us what we all know, that God gave us His Son. Verse 17 explains why 
And verse 18 emphasizes the result. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So again this morning, I want to ask you, have you accepted that free gift this morning. Just like Paul in our scripture in Galatians today, he was on a hill that he was willing to die on. But guess what? In John three sixteen through 18, we read about another hill. And it was a hill that Jesus was willing to die on. I wonder this morning, have you accepted him? The great news is if you haven't, you can today. Don't put, off, don't put it off any longer. You don't know that you will be able to walk out of this building today and make it to your home. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. But we have this moment. We have this moment. I would encourage you, if you have a decision to make for Christ this morning, come forward and don't hesitate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day that you've given us. Father, I thank you for your word that's true. And Father, I pray that you will use this message today. I pray that as people heard these words, that they heard the truth of the gospel. Father, I pray that you are moving in the hearts and lives of people in this sanctuary right now. Perhaps of people who are listening on the radio or watching on the live stream. And Father, I just ask that you will move today. I pray that just as we saw in, at the end of chapter 1 with Paul's radical transformation, I pray that we will see a transformation in this place this morning as well. Father, I pray that you will save the lost, set the captives free. And Father, I pray that you will just continually birth a desire in us to, to tell our story, to tell of the love of Jesus. Father, I pray that we will know when we have a hill to die on. And I pray in those moments that we will stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.